And uh, we're going to complete the book of Romans in the next two weeks. And uh, the last uh, part of 15 and the whole chapter of 16 are merely the uh, final travel plans that Paul has, plus his greetings and salutations to various people. So we're going to stop in the middle of chapter 15. There's no, really no reason to go to the end of the chapter. Uh, so today and next week we'll end with the book of Romans. If you're there in chapter 15, now hear God's word. We're going to read the first 13 verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for the followers of Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other, just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Remember, Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that, to show that Gentiles might give glory... Excuse me to show that God is true to His promises that He made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for His mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. In another place it is written, Rejoice with His people, you Gentiles. And again, Praise Him, all you Gentiles. Praise Him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, Let the heir, let the heir of David's throne come, and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on Him. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you, with com- fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord. So, what I think, at least for my part, Dawson has helped me these last few weeks, starting with uh, chapter 12. And what I think I'm going to do is take chapter 15 as a... um, an opportunity to just speak from my heart and not really, I mean, I've prepared sermon and I have my notes, but I think you need to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Rome. The churches that he wrote to at this time were not any different than what we experience today. We seem to think that things are really bad right now, they're just awful. And I can assure you that in many places they are. But here in the United States, we live in an incredible privilege. There are some encroachments 
against Christianity. But they're minor. Nobody loses their life here in the United States, at least not yet. And uh, so we need to get our head focused around what Paul is saying to the churches in every age and every place. And so in chapter 1, very clearly he's talking about the gospel of Jesus. What is the gospel of Jesus? It is the announcement that the king has come and that he will restore this creation through the work of his church. The great king has arrived. That's the announcement, the euangelion, the gospel. The king has come and he means to reverse what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he lays out what the great sin of mankind is. And we have pressed hard in asking you to look deeply within your heart because what we do, what human beings do, is we suppress the truth and we replace it with a lie and we worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. That is the sin of mankind. He wasn't content to be in paradise with God. He wanted more and that is our sin, the sin of all humanity. And we struggle against it every day of our life. Make no mistake, idolatry is not something that just goes away when you're a Christian. In fact, idolatry becomes incredibly sophisticated once you become a Christian. And it sneaks and it hides in in places you would never imagine. And this is the role of the church and the pastors and elders and women's council and all of the leadership in the church is to help you navigate through those waters of chapters 18 of uh, chapter 1 18 verse 18 through 32 this distortion of the relationship of mankind the distortion of the imago dei the image of god in every human being the narrative arc of all scripture and this is something you should just write it in your front of your bible because this is the narrative arc of all scripture This is the reason why there's a chapter 4 in Genesis and a chapter 22 in Revelation. The only reason that any of those chapters were written is because of what happened in chapter 3 of Genesis. The narrative arc is simply this. Now there's a lot of ways. Dawson's giving you a couple of good ways. Creation, fall, redemption, so on. The one that I use, the one that I think is helpful, at least for me, creation, chaos, and recreation. That's been the goal of God's world ever since the fall. I am going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to recreate the earth. And I'm going to establish on the throne of this earth my son, the king, who will be the one who crushes that serpent's head. And so the narrative arc of all scriptures leading us to new birth, to renewal, to regeneration, to a new Jerusalem. In chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Romans, he explains very clearly that there is no way back from the fall. Sermon's over. Did you hear that? My alarm. There's, There's no way back. What happened in Genesis was so severe, and we tend to minimize what happened, but what happened was so severe 
that there is no way back. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, never to be able to return until someone obeyed God. And as some sacrifice was made that would pay the ultimate penalty for those sins and the sins of all of us. I'm not held responsible for Adam and Eve's sin, neither are you. You're held responsible for your own sins. That's what chapters 2 and 3 say. And the law cannot save you. Your good merits, your good behavior can't save you. It can't get you there. It can't even get you close. All it can do, according to 2 and 3, is condemn you and bring you into a place of hopelessness and despair. But hear what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3. God has shown us a way to be made right with Him, placing faith in Jesus Christ for everyone, no matter who it is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us acceptable, freely justifies us through Jesus. Listen, He freed us from the penalty for our sins. He presented Jesus as a sacrifice. Remember the word propitiation. There's only a few words you really need to learn theological terms. One of them is propitiation. The satisfaction for sin. The payment for sin. The expiation for sin. The taking away of sin from us. And giving an offering to God that that is a sweet smelling aroma. A satisfying life. And Jesus' life was that. Beautiful, satisfying. And God could take that in and say, I am now pleased. And anyone who will trust Him can be freed from the penalty for sin. In chapter 4, He reaches back into the life of Abraham, the father of the faithful, and He says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him. He was counted as righteous. Abraham was not made righteous. He was imputed or counted as righteous because of who he was trusting. You see, the trust of Abraham had no no power, no force in itself. Remember, faith is not a force. Faith is a decision, a choice. There were thousands of gods in the ancient Near East. Abraham could have chosen to worship any one of them. But instead, he chose to follow yod heh the Yahweh, the Jehovah, whatever, however it was pronounced, we don't really know. But he chose to, to serve the Lord and made the Lord his God. And because of that, God imputed to him or counted him righteous in his sight. And he said, this promise is for you and all your children and for anyone who will trust me. Anyone. So in chapter 4, he explains, even Gentiles who didn't have the law can have the same faith of Abraham. In chapter 5, he reaches even further back and he talks about the first and second Adam. And he says, this first Adam, the Adam in the garden, through his disobedience, brought sin and death into the world. But there's another Adam, the second Adam, who came. The first Adam's sin, listen to what Paul says, brought condemnation. Christ's 
obedience. Christ's righteousness, the second Adam, Jesus, brought life and light to all who would trust in him. New life, rebirth. When we were utterly helpless, he says, think about this. God demonstrates his love this way. While we were utterly helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Maybe it's possible that someone might die for another person, a good person, but no one would die for an evil, unrighteous person. But God demonstrates His love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And in so doing, He crushes, He took care of the penalty of sin. Now in chapter 6, and the end of 5 in chapter 6, He crushes the power of sin. He crushes it in His own body, in His own being. He takes the penalty away. And He breaks this power of sin in our lives. We have been united with Him. Last Sunday we baptized uh, the Campbell babies, the twins. And what we believe is that God put His mark on those babies that day, last week, last Sunday. And He said to us, we didn't say anything to Him. We're not dedicating these babies to Him. We come and put the mark on this child, in their case, children, and they're the most beautiful children I've ever seen. Well, not completely. Because we just had a new, we've got little Theo back there, and we've got some others here. We had the most beautiful children in our church. But when you put, God, God takes your children, folks, you're Christians, you bring your children, and He puts a mark on Him, instead of you saying like you're going to do something for Him, He says, I will, I will mark these children, they're mine now. I will never let them go. And you're to trust me, parents. You're to trust me every day of your life for your children. No matter what it looks like, you trust me for them. Now you're talking. Now you're talking about covenant power, blood power, ancient power that old ancient people understood that modern people don't get anymore. Now it's all we're going to, we'll tell God what we're going to do for Him. He doesn't tell us what He's going to do for us. And it's exactly the opposite in the Gospel. So in chapter 6, Paul says we have been united, listen, united with Christ in our baptism. The old sinful nature, the old sinful person was crucified in that ritual of baptism. Put to death. So that sin would lose its power. We are no longer slaves to sin, he says in chapter 6. We're set free from sin's power. Penalty gone, power broken. But what about chapter 7? Right off the bat, in chapter 7, he explains that we are still, in some sense, slaves to sin. 
And you think, in your, you think in your mind, you say, well, you know, gosh, he's just contradicting himself within a few verses. But Paul uses an incredible metaphor of marriage and then death and how all that works and our flesh and talking about our bodies and, and, and the fact that sin remains, penalty gone, power broken, but its presence remains. And why? does its presence remain? And Paul explains it's because of the sarts, the flesh, the body. We're still here. We're not resurrected yet. The inside is new, but the outside is dead. It is fading away because death is a penalty for sin and our bodies must die. Even though we'll never see, if you trust Jesus, you never see the inside of a grave, but your outer body must die. So that, in order that, we can be resurrected in a new and glorious body. Now we're into the book of Corinthians. But what he's saying is simply this. That we are not in any way to be discouraged by the fact that sin continues to to plague us and create tension. Because we have been freed from the power of sin. Its penalty is gone. Its power is gone. Who can condemn us? And he starts chapter 8, no one. There is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Nothing can condemn us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing means nothing. R.C. Sproul said, used to say, nothing is not a little something. Nothing is nothing. What is going to separate you? Your bad behavior? Your your ill-doing? You're missing church? You're not doing your Bible? Or or even some terrible sins? And some of you do commit terrible sins. We don't, but you do. (laughs) What's going to separate you? Nothing will separate you from this love. Of God, how do you know? How can you be sure that there is nothing that will separate you from God's love? The doctrine of election. Now, don't break out in hives because we mention election and predestination. He explains it in three chapters what election is, who it applies to. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and you believe in Him. It's chapter 10. Believe in your hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. You shall be saved. And in chapter 11, He explains about Israel and all that. God's faithfulness. Election is just another word for God's faithfulness. Are you with me? He uses three chapters to absolutely nail the coffin down and say, "This, this person is dead I've got you. You do not have me. I've got you. No matter what comes, angels, demons, hell, heaven, doesn't matter what comes against you. Doesn't matter what encroaches in your life. Doesn't matter how how foolish you may be. I have you. When you're walking, when you're coming to me, and you walk through the door, it's all you. 
But when you turn and you look back at the door that you just passed through to get into God's presence, you look above the door and you see these words printed in blood. I chose you. You did not choose me. I chose you. You did not choose me. You did not choose me. And there you can put down an anchor for your soul that nothing and no one can tear away. The reality of God's immeasurable grace and love, commending His love, is what sets us up so that we can battle sin and we can do what He commands us. You see, 1 through 11, all these chapters, He's been telling us This is what your Savior's done for you. This is how much He loves you. This is how He has empowered you. This is why you must come in chapter 12 and offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, because that's your reasonable service of worship. That's the only thing that's reasonable after reading these 11 chapters and having it completely transform your soul. You're a new being in Christ. And here you are, brand new. And he said, now, the bloody sacrifice went on the cross. All I'm asking for you is to lay down your life. A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable. It's reasonable. When we continue to sin, and folks, I do, and I know you do, we continue to sin, we let sin encroach, it's because we don't understand grace. We forget the gospel. And Paul, in chapter 12, he starts listing things that he expects us to do. Now we're supposed to do some stuff. 12, 13. 13, he talks about love, genuine love, real love, the kind of love that it's not an emotion, it's not squishy, it's not syrupy, it's an action. It's sacrificial. It's going to cost you to love somebody. It's going to cost you to lay down your life. And make no mistake, if you're going to love someone, you're going to lose something. It's not going to just, you know, willy-nilly. And in chapter 14, he gives some amazing examples. I thought Dawson did an incredible job showing that with so many things, those circles, you remember the circles? He alluded to the cone of certainty that I've used. Those two illustrations are worth pure gold. Because what we find people divide, you know, this city is 85% Roman Catholic, and I have more in common with all of those people than I have with a whole number of other people. Uh, Protestant people that we might call Protestants. We share the same faith. And yet, we will divide over all kinds of things. There are core issues that are in the center of our lives. It's what they teach at Covenant Seminary, at uh, RTS. They taught us the cone of certainty. And and you can only have a few of those. You can't have a whole bunch of them because the Bible doesn't have a whole bunch of them. The Bible has a few. And then there are secondary, and then there are tertiary issues. Should you smoke? Should you drink? How, how much should you drink? How much should you smoke? What should you smoke? On and on it goes. 
And when you find people, Christian people, that abuse drinking and abuse smoking and abuse what they see and watch on TV or abuse that stuff, looking at porn, doing whatever, you find people that are doing it and they say they're Christians, they don't understand grace. They've forgotten the gospel. Otherwise, all you have left is your willpower. And good luck with that. Some people have good willpower and, oh, you're strong, good for you. But the rest of us, what hope is there? My only hope is that my heart can find a love, that my heart can find a love worthy, strong enough, shoulders broad enough to hold up the weight of my sin. And when you find that and you fall in love with that person, then the expulsive power of that love can drive out the other things. And how long will that take? A lifetime. We're in for the long haul, not the quick fix. We're in because Jesus gave all, we give all. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. We do not please ourselves. We give up our rights for the weaker brother. Somebody has has got some scruples about somebody, be tender. You know, if they want to wear a mask, be kind. You know how much crap we got in this church just for suggesting that we follow, you know, back when it was all, nobody knew what was going on. Wear a mask, please. I'm not going to apologize for saying that ever again. If somebody had told me to put a, a, a clothespin on my nose for the, just to make the people over there feel comfortable with a clothespin on my nose... By God, you better do it. Can I get a pathetic amen? Amen. Come on, folks. Don't please yourselves. Jesus didn't please Himself. Read your Gospels. Look what this man did for the sake of others. For your sake and for mine, look what He did. Change your mind about these things. Give way. Make way. And Paul says, you know, if eating meat, if eating meat upsets my brother, I will not eat meat for the rest of my life. How do you like that? The little church that I uh, pastored, it was a dying church, and I put it to death in Florida. When I got, wasn't even there a few months, they started fighting over the coffee. A couple of ladies in the church, they got crossways and they started arguing about the coffee. I got up just like this in church. There was only maybe 20 people. It wasn't like this many. And I told them, I said, no more coffee. We're not going to have coffee ever again for the rest of our lives. Because these ladies were sitting on opposite sides and they wouldn't speak to each other over coffee. And you know what? They wouldn't give it up. That's why the church died. They got mad at me. Who are you to tell us we can't have coffee? Well, I happen to be ordained by the living God of the universe, the creator of all things, and I happen to be full of His Holy Spirit, and I actually understand my Bible, unlike you. See, I could have thrown all this onto them. I could have crushed them. Instead, I said, love each other as Christ loved you. Stop it. Please hear me, folks. I'm not saying, you know, mask mandates don't mean anything. 
And now we find out the masks probably weren't helping that much anyway. But so what? One of my closest friends from seminary lost his church over it. They split into three pieces and he's without a job after planting that church and pastoring it faithfully for 25 years. And that congregation is living an illusion if they think they're going to enter through the gates of heaven because they know the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's some serious repenting that needs to go on and Paul is pleading. I plead with you, he says in 12, Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Nothing, let nothing come. Not eating, not drinking, not holy days, not anything. Don't let it come between us. Dawson alluded to things like politics. Things like diet. You know, you see somebody that won't let their kids have sugar. So you look down your nose at them because they want, which is what I did. When my kids weren't looking, I gave my grandkids sugar. <laughs> and my, my kids begged me, please, Dad, don't give them sugar. I won't, I promise. I swear to God. <laughs> the minute they turned, I was shoving chocolate ice cream in their mouth. <sighs> God, forgive me and forgive us. When you sit down to have a drink in a bar and you have a nice glass of wine and then you say, I'm going to have another and another and another. You're presuming on God's grace. When you're looking at the, at the, at the, at the, at the computer and you're saying, oh, I'll just take a little look at this link here. This is interesting. And you look at it and you go, hmm, that looks nice. And you say, oh, I'll just take another little peek. We play brinkmanship until we are in the clutches of sin again, and we blame God for it. How come He created the world like this? Go back and read Romans 1, 18-32. It's not Him that created the world like this. It's us. And if you understand the Gospel, if you preach the Gospel to yourself every day, that second drink will not happen. That second or third click will will not happen. Those words will not come out of your mouth against your brother who voted for Joe Biden. The hatred will be put to death by the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Do you hear me? I'm only around for a few more years, folks. I'm going to get away with whatever I can right now. I'm going to be real, real honest with you. Because this church could be different. We could be different. I'm not asking you to change how you vote. I'm asking you to change how you treat others, is what he's saying. These implications of the gospel should transform every single part of your life. We have a duty, an obligation. And it can become a duty or an obligation, a debt that you feel that you can pay. Or what Paul moves to in these last few verses is you can actually delight in sacrificing for others. You can find delight instead of just raw duty. You mean I have to love my enemy? No, you don't have to love your enemy. You Get to 
that will transform your life. You mean I get to forgive? You mean I, I'm actually okay? It's okay if I accept this person that has a bone in their nose? Yeah, it's okay to accept them. We'll talk to them about why they have a bone in their nose, sure, but what is separating, what is driving us apart? It's not the Trinity. It's not Jesus' hypostatic union. It's not these highfalutin theological things. It's just, I don't even know how to put it. But he says, let the strong be considerate of the weak. And so we come to 15, very quickly. Look at what he says. Just, just look at your notes. Look at your, look at your Bible. The strong, verse 1, strong must be considerate. We are not to please ourselves. When we're interacting with people, how quickly are we going to put up a barrier or how quickly are we going to tear down that barrier and give in? I'm not saying compromise your beliefs or compromise your, your conscience or anything. Even the book of church order, our Presbyterian book of church order, forbids us to bind the conscience of any other believer. We can't bind anybody's conscience. We can call them out for sin, but we can't bind their conscience. I'm not talking about binding anybody's conscience. I'm talking about just treating them with some measure of respect and dignity and acceptance and not throwing up barriers. Look at 5 and 6. Live in harmony. Why? So that with one voice we can worship together. Worship the Lord. The idea is the reunification of humanity, not its destruction. Look at your life. Where are you dividing from others? Why are you mad at some? Well, they made me mad. They hurt my feelings. Okay. They hurt your feelings. Are you going to give it up or not? Not until they do this and such and such. You put up all kinds of conditions. Let me ask you something, folks. Come on, Christianity 101. How many conditions did Jesus put up against you for you to come to Him? How many? I don't know of any. How dare we? How dare we? Well, they didn't they didn't miss. Now we make all kinds of excuses and we self-righteously say, I have a right to be mad. No, you don't. Repent, believe the gospels. Your pastor speaking, I have incredible authority. Live in harmony. May God give who gives patience and encourage help you to live in complete harmony, not partial harmony, complete harmony as is fitting for followers of Christ. You see, we claim that we follow Jesus, but we really don't. We follow ourselves, and we tell Jesus, hey, tag along behind so when something happens, I can turn to you real quick. So don't get too far away from me while I tread down this road doing whatever the heck I want. Look at 7 through 9. Live in harmony. 7 through 9, accept each other as Christ has accepted you. So God will be given glory. You want to give glory to God? Accept other people that are different than you. Be kind. Be soft. Be tender. 
And if it's somebody that is in your community, someone that you love, you may have to, as Gary reminds us in our session meeting, sometimes we have to rebuke. That's part of the job of being a pastor is to stand up and rebuke people and say, this is wrong, stop it. Stop that. And we don't dare. If we cross certain lines, we will get, we will get cut to pieces. And the Apostle Paul is telling us to live in harmony, accept each other on different levels. Accept people out there that are maybe not like us and bring them in. Ask them why they believe this and that. Instead of just crushing, putting up a wall and you over there, us and them. The Bible, there's no us and them, folks. No us and them. There's only us. And Him. Only us and Him. And He sends His Son and He has His apostles write these kind of words. And He means us to take them serious. And then 9 through 12, He gives these lists, a litany of psalms that say, this is what the end goal is. Why am I saying all this? Paul is saying to you and me. Why am I saying? So that when we die and we are in God's presence, we may worship Him, all of us, together, with one voice. I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will rejoice with your people, you Gentiles. I will praise you, Lord, you and the Gentiles, all the people of the earth. David's heir will come. Who's that? Jesus came and he will rule over their Gentiles. And they, just like the ancient people of Abraham, they will all put their hope in him. Folks, you have your hope in something. We have told you this, Jocelyn and I, and I, even going way back to the first sermon I ever preached in this church, you have your hope in something. You have the courage to look and say, what is that? What is my hope? What, what, can, what can I uh, uh, not live without? What makes my life worth living? What are my ultimate allegiances to? And the book of Romans, without apology, without equivocation, up, right up in our face, says this, one allegiance, one king, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, will you trust him? with anything and everything. Will you? I hope you will. Father, thank you uh, for this book. It's been a blessing to me to spend these months going through your, your gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus, as it is in Romans. I pray that, uh, that you'll open our hearts so that we can be transformed, that we can renew our minds to the reality of what God has done for us, so that when we do stand in His presence, He can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Father, I pray that you will make this so, and that Christ the King 
If you can change us, maybe we can, maybe we can set off a ripple in this world. Help us to do that. Amen.